Good morning, everyone. Today is uh, the 13th day of Tishrei, 5782. It's uh, September 19th, 2021. Uh, today uh, would be my parents' uh, wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary, Mom. It's interesting that on uh, the newsletter that we posted last week, my son had forwarded me uh, uh, an image. He forwarded to the family chat an image from uh, the Sephardic Heritage Museum that had been posted that day, and the image was the wedding of Adele and Joe Beebe, September 19th, 1948. And uh, my father had a part of part of what he uh, he gave over in his interview was uh, was quoted in the in the post. Also today is uh, yesterday he was Joan and Lauren's uh, anniversary and. Uh, and uh, I think Jonah's Hebrew birthday, Stephen's Hebrew birthday, I guess Yosef, my grandson's Hebrew birthday, comes around now. And Sophia, my granddaughter in Israel, her birthday is uh, is also. So happy birthday to everyone. Happy anniversary to everyone. And if you're celebrating something, and we're all celebrating something because we are celebrating the coming holiday of Sukkot. What, what I think sometimes is that... Uh, you know, last night and Friday night I gave a class, Saturday evening I gave a class, and both times I, I wish there was a way to record the class. It's so much more fun when you give a class live and you have feedback back and forth. You're giving a class and generally there's no notes here. You're off the cuff and you're going forward because you're getting questions and you're getting feedback from people. The podcast, I think, is a little more difficult because you're sitting alone and who are you talking to? Am I talking to my computer screen? Am I talking to to uh to my phone which is recording this and i don't have the studio set up so uh we, we do our best so what we're, what we're going to try to do is we're going to pull the information from last night's class which really would have been amazing if we could have uh we could have recorded it i uh i i actually found an article that i that i wrote last year you know in the last 18 months there's sometimes very much a blur really a blur because I, I didn't recall this article even writing it, um, and uh, it related to a class. I don't know if I've ever given the class. It's just crazy. And then I was thinking about Les Sukkot, and Les Sukkot, uh, my daughter Michaela had just given birth in Israel right before the Chagim. Uh, my wife Chantel, my daughter Mariah, had gone to Israel. They were living in this beautiful apartment on the penthouse uh, in Tel Aviv with a swimming pool. They had this most magnificent sukkah on the roof of the building, their own sukkah, their own uh, their own uh, sukkah where they're able to stay with the kids and the grandkids and, uh, and overlook all of Tel Aviv, overlook the Mediterranean. Magnificent. Uh, and and strange, it's, it's hard to even realize that that's a year ago. This, this whole year has is, is just been uh, a mishmash of... Uh, of time and events. <clears throat> so some years back, I discussed with Rabbi Avitan, a Midrash, that teaches us that whoever fulfills the mitzvah of the sukkah in this world, in Olam Hazeh, he's going to be Zohar. He's going to be Zohar that Hashem will give him a portion in the future sukkah of Sedom. And it seemed very, very strange. For those who want to look it up, it, the Midrash is Pesikta Rabat, Rabati de Rav Kahana, section 29 on Sukkot. And there it's quoting based on Yishayahu, the Sukkah of the Messianic 
year era. So it seemed very strange. Who who wants to have a sukkah of Sidom? And I remember this, you know, this is going back 17, 18 years ago, discussing this with the rabbi. And I, I told the rabbi, listen, I don't understand the Midrash. Who would want to have a portion in a sukkah of Sidom? I told him it was like telling me at the time that I just won this all-expense-paid trip via military transport to Bin Laden's cave to dine with the Taliban in Afghanistan. I mean, it just made no sense whatsoever. At the time, Rabbi Abitan laughed, and he told me, listen, David, you have to recall, why is the period between, and specifically the days of Shiva Sar Tammuz, the 17th of Tammuz, and the 9th of Av, the worst on our calendar? Of course we know that these events are the bookends of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. Both times. But what made the energy of these days so powerfully negative? Now we've discussed this in the past. And we've explained that usually the worst comes from what could have been the best. The 17th of Tammuz should have been the greatest day of the year. It should have been the day that Moshe Rabbeinu came down from the mountain and brought us the tablets. And remember, when Moshe, when we, when we, when we heard the commandments, when we stood at Mamar HaSinai, there was a new world. Death was wiped out from the world at that point. And had we not worshipped the calf, had we not fallen on that 17th of Tammuz, the day would have ushered in a completely new world. The energy of Kiddushah, of holiness, was so great. And what did, what, would the, what did we do? We shattered the lines. We caused a, a, a break in the circuit. And we caused a tremendous explosion. The day of the greatest potential Kiddushah, by cutting the wires... We cause this damage and this danger that what do we have to do? We have to lay low because the wires are up there with this crazy exposed energy and the energy not controlled and not flowing becomes very dangerous. And the same is true for Tisha B'Av. You know, it was all, almost also a second chance and it could have been the day when the Miraglim returned and we began to celebrate our march and the miraculous conquering of Eretz Israel of the Holy Land. Instead, again, the energy of the day backfired. It short-circuited it and damaged us for all time. But that is also why those days will eventually be transformed into great holidays. Because that's what they should have been from the beginning. Rabbi Abitan reminded me that the great tragedy often occurs at the point of the greatest potential. So he suggested to me at the time, if one were to ponder this and review what the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the rabbis write about Sedom, beginning to understand what Sedom was, what Sedom could have been, why Sedom was destroyed, and why it will be, in a way, resurrected during the time of Mashiach, one would begin to understand. So, following my conversation with the rabbi, I had put together a class. 
And normally, I have notes on all of my classes, notes on all of the holidays. They're very, very well organized into files within the computer when the, when the class is just from some written notes. I, uh, I scan them into the computer. And when I look back, I only had some post-its. And the problem is really this with me. It's for the most part, when I give a class, when I give a speech especially or, or specifically live. Things change a little when I'm doing it through, uh, through uh, WhatsApp, through, uh, sorry, through Zoom or, or through the, the podcast now because what happens is when you, again, when you have a live audience is somewhat something to feedback. You could just start and you can go. And, uh, and, and the fact is that pretty much every week I give a class with absolutely no notes and I, I don't take the time afterwards to record those those notes but in this case i found some post-its and i started looking into my folder on sukkot and you know it's a it's a hard time the rabbis tell us something very interesting it says that rishon the beginning for the accounting rishon for cheshbon of averot the beginning of the accounting of sins is the first day of sukkot what does that mean? In some ways, between Yom Kippur ending and Sukkot beginning, the rabbis tell us we're so busy, we have no time to sin. What are we doing? We're dealing with the synagogue donations of the holidays. We're building the sukkah. We're putting up the lights. We're picking up the lulav and etrog. We're distributing lulav and etrog. We're finding extra hadassim. We're getting food for the holiday. We're looking at the sukkah schedule. There always is never enough time to write. It's the hardest thing to put out a newsletter between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. There's no time. If you had extra hours in every day, there's no time. So we keep busy. And one of the things that keeps us from doing Averot is keeping busy. So, I, you know, I, at the time, I, I remember that uh, I, I said there wasn't time. But what I did at the time, I guess, last year, and again, I don't remember, is I took my notes and I took an article that I had within my notes, and the article was written by Rabbi Zav Rudman, and that was on the future of Sidom. It was an article from 2017. And then there was a magnificent, magnificent essay, and it's from a rabbi at Nativ Aryeh. His name is Rabbi Chaim Rosenblatt, one of the boys who reads the Torah for us, uh, A.B. Lieber. He said that Rabbi Chaim Rosenblatt and him would learn literally one-on-one all the time. And Rabbi, Rabbi Rosenblatt is, is a genius or putting together, he's, you know, to be a mechaber and put together the information from other people, he, he's just amazing, absolutely amazing. Anyone who has a opportunity to meet him or to read his essays, it's, it's fantastic. He's typically, he's pulling information from his Rabbi Hagaon Hagadol, Rav Moshe Wolfson Shlita, and, uh, and he does a beautiful job. So, so his notes, his thoughts are heavily, heavily reflected in what I wrote in that article. And it's sort of mishmashed with what Rabbi Abitan explained and also my own conclusions. <coughs> and also I, I try to give some background where we can understand. So let's move forward in, in just an amazing, an amazing, I think an amazing class, something very, very different and something that opens us up to many thoughts in Kabbalah, many thoughts about Gilgul that will help us understand Gilgul, and more importantly, will help us understand 
who we are. They'll help us understand who we are. So if I were to make a list of places whose very mention immediately conjures up associations with the lowest and worst concepts, Sodom is certainly going to be high on the list. This is a city with utterly immoral behavior. This was a city that, that made sure to stretch out or chop off parts of its guest's body to, to perfectly fit the, the, the guest's bed. It, it was a city that rejected guests in any way. Not only that, anyone who would host a guest was killed. It's hard to imagine this area being associated with anything positive. And yet, the source of this Midrash tells us very openly that this place will be the location of the reward for those who fulfill the mitzvah of Sukkah. I remember a couple of years ago, we were Zohar before all this craziness began, that we spent Sukkot in Israel. And at the end of Sukkot, we went to this beautiful hotel, Eretz Bereshit, something Bereshit, Hotel Bereshit. And I wrote about it at the time. It was this, uh, this, uh, this amazing uh, area in the desert. And you were like one with nature. And I mean, you saw the sign, one-way hotel, one-way Sedom. So you were, you were there. So that, you know, I thought, wow, this could be the idea of... Uh, of a beautiful sukkah in Sedom that was one of the most beautiful places I had ever been in Israel. But in any event, what does that mean? What does that mean to, 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 to be zocher? To, to be zocher, to, to celebrate in the sukkah of Sedom. How could a sukkah of, of, of Olam Haba, of Olam HaMashiach, how could that be associated with, with such a horrible place? Let's remember, though, how does the Torah describe Sedom? We see in Bereshit that Lot, when he separates from Abraham, what happens? He sees the plain of the Yarden. It's entirely watered before Hashem destroyed Sedom and Amorah. And the Pasuk says it was like the garden of Hashem. The garden of Hashem, that was Sedom. This garden certainly referred to Gan Eden, the garden of Eden. This garden is the place of reward for the righteous in the future. So we have to wonder, why would this wicked city be described in the Torah in any way to resemble Gan Eden? And let's go further. In the Sefer Iyov, the book of of Job, the book of Iyov, it tells us, what was Sidom? It was a land from which bread emerged. You didn't have to work. The bread literally came to you. And its stones were a place of sapphire and it had gold dust. When we think of sapphire, we think of the terms the rabbis write that the heavens, the heavens appear sapphire reflecting off the ocean. The throne of Hashem is made out of sapphire. The Asirat Hadibrot, the Ten Commandments are made out of sapphire. And this place, Sedom, is sapphire, again, associated with the most level of Kedushav stone. Iyov also tells us that the path was unknown to the eagle and the eye of the nesher, the, 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 the vulture, did not see it. Why? And the rabbis explained there were seven layers of trees beginning with the vines of the grapes and going up level by level by level. Each level of different trees, one higher than the other. They covered the roads and it was almost impossible to see down on the roads. 
The Pasuk also tells us in Eov that beasts did not tread on it, lions did not come through. This place was literally Gan Eden on earth. This is the description that we have in the Tanakh of the land of Sidon. In Sefer Bamidbar, at the end of Sefer Bamidbar, I think it's Perashat Masai, we see there the, 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 the markers, the border markers are given for Eretz Israel, And we begin with the southeast corner of the land of Israel. And we're told this is Sedom. Sedom is the southeast corner. And then we run around the map to mark out the border. And we come back to Sedom again. Sedom is mentioned twice in the description of the borders of Eretz Yisrael. Why is Sedom given this honor? In the Midrash Bereshit Rabbah, it asks a question. Where did Hashem find David HaMelech? And the answer the Midrash gives, in Sedom. What do you mean in Sedom? David HaMelech, King David, was in Sedom? And we know that David's ancestor, Lot, lived in Sedom. Lot's daughter gave rise, one to Moab, Moab to Ruth. David's great-grandmother came from Moab. And from Ammon comes Naamah, the wife of Shlomo HaMelech, King, King Solomon who's the mother of his son, Rehovam, and in essence, the great-grandmother of the Mashiach. From them come David and the Mashiach. From where? From Sidon. And we have to ask, isn't it peculiar that the root area of the dynasty of Mashiach should be none other than what we're going to consider as the world capital of corruption? How do we understand this? And when we understand this, we can understand so much more. The foundation of answering all of these questions really relates to the rabbi's answer comparing this, the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av. Him explaining that if you understand the, something with the greatest potential can sink to the bottom, we could understand now that Sodom was potentially on an incredibly high level. And because it did not fulfill its position and in a way reversed its wires, it became what? The exact opposite, an unspiritual place. The depths of which Sedom fell testified to the potential heights to which this city is capable of rising when its power is harnessed for good. We noted in the past that in baseball, it's three strikes, you're out. Anyone getting a little back into baseball, looking at the Yankees, trying to see if they're going to make that last wild card spot, yeah, you start to look at least at the, at the paper the next day, what the Yankees do. The Mikubalim, you know, they could have taken three strikes, you're out, right? But the Mikubalim tells us, no, when it comes to Hashem, it's more merciful. We have three strikes and then Hashem gives us one more chance, right? One more chance, free, free, free swing. Now we've explained before, but we need to explain now so everyone can understand that the rabbis teach us that the door, Hamabul, the generation of the flood, 
the generation of Noah failed, they were destroyed by the flood. If we think about it, Adam HaRishon is created. Adam sins. The sin of Adam now has to be repaired by future generations. The tenth generation from the tenth generation from uh, Adam HaRishon is who? That's Noah. Noah is the tenth generation. And that generation with Noah's birth, the rabbis tell us when Noah was born, the world became comforted. He brought things easier. Noah was this great inventor who brought things to make life easy for the people in that world. And we have to think, what kind of lives did they live? They lived for centuries and centuries. They didn't have to worry about getting sick. They had all of their parnasah there so simple for them to take. They had every advantage of life. They just had to sit back and receive. And in fact, we learn that Noah was from the root soul of Moshe Rabbeinu. So as we understand it, this generation should have been the generation to receive the Torah. That's the high level. With Noah bringing them the Torah. And Hashem tells Noah that this generation is, is, is doing Hamas. What's Hamas? They're robbing from each other. They're not taking care of each other. Their, their behavior, Ben Adam Lechavero, between man and man, is terrible. And what's he going to do? He's going to destroy this world. They had every advantage possible. They should have been the ones to receive the Torah. They should have been the ones to be metaken adam. <coughs> and they mess up. So what happens? Hashem brings the flood. They all die. They come up to Shemaim and they say, Hashem, what did you do to us? You know, Hashem, it was very, very hard for us to fulfill ben adam lechavero between man and man. Give us a chance. Send us back down again. And let's, let's see if we can at least fulfill Ben Adam Lemakom. Don't give us a, a, uh, a challenge of man between man and man. Let, let, let us do that. Give, a, give us that one. And give us the challenge if we could fulfill Ben Adam Lemakom between man and God. So Hashem sends them back down. They become the door haflaga, the generation of Bavel. And again, they have every, every advantage of life. The rabbis tell us they were so technologically advanced. They were, they were, they were, they understood the ability to use the Shem, the name. They could do anything. And what do they do? They go and they build a tower. And they put an idol on the top of the tower. And in the idol's hand, there is a sword. And their intent is to do what? to battle with Hashem and make a name for themselves. And what does Hashem do? Well, at least they kept the Ben Adam Lechavero between man and man, and they die out. And they all come up to Hashem and they say, Hashem, it was too hard for us. Give us another chance. Give us another chance and give us some hints along the way so that we know. This time, let us try Ben Adam Lechavero, but on a lighter level. Let's limit it to guests, how we take care of guests. Let's see what we could do. So Hashem says, okay, 
I'm going to send you all back down to this most amazing place called Sidom. Sidom, like Gan Eden, you're never going to have to work. Bread's going to grow basically from the ground. The trees are going to be everywhere. Fruits are going to be available to you. Everything is going to be there for you. I'm sending you to Sidom. Let's see what you could do in Sidom. You're not going to ever have to worry about making a living. Your challenge is simply going to be, how do you take care of a guest? And what happens when they get to Sidom? Hashem decides to help them out. When he sees they're not going, going the right way. He helps them out how? By having an army come and defeat them. They see how horrible it is when strangers come and don't treat others nicely. And every citizen of Sedom is taken captive. And they're taken captive and they're being brought north. And then what happens? A stranger comes and shows what a stranger should do, chesed, one for another. Who is that stranger? Abraham Avinu, Abraham. And he comes and he defeats the kings who took the people of Sidom capture, captive. And what does he do? He frees them. And the king of Sidom comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, please, you know what? All of the money, all of the spoils of war, they're yours. And in reality, we are yours. We should be your slaves. But please allow us to go back to our homes and live an independent life. And the people of Sodom are hoping for the kindness of a stranger. And what does this stranger do? Not only does he allow them to go back to their homes. Not only does he allow them to stay independent and have their own lives. He gives them back all of the spoils of war. Not a string, not a shoelace, he says he's going to take. And the people of Sodom see what an unbelievable level of gemilut chasadim, of kindness to strangers, of kind deeds in the example of Abraham. They have the lesson, they feel what it is to be oppressed by a stranger, and they see what it is to benefit from a stranger. And not only that, Abraham leaves with them his nephew Lot. Lot becomes one of the judges of Sodom. He sits at the gate of Sodom and he sets an example of, of taking care of guests, of Gemilut Hasadim. And so they should have learned. They, were, they came and they begged in heaven, send us back, give us a chance. Not only does Hashem give them a chance... He gives them lessons along the way to steer them back on to the right path. And what happens? A young girl tries to give a guest food. She tries to hide the food to give to her. The young girl, the daughter of Lot. And what happens? They take her and they kill her. She comes back as a gilgul, as our mother, Rivka. And then what happens? The angels come and Lot brings them into his house. And not only are the people of Sodom not hospitable to others, they go so far as they want to kill Lot and they want to kill the angels. <laughs> Instead of fulfilling the test of Gemilut Chasadim, which is the challenge they were brought here to do, with all the examples they have, not only do they not fulfill it, they do the opposite. They do the opposite. 
And what happens is they all get killed. And not only do they get killed, they're destroyed in a way that the entire city is destroyed. No remnant remains of them other than the pillar of salt of the wife of Lot. It's unbelievable. Three strikes, you're out. But like we said, it's not three strikes, you're out. Hashem gives them one more chance. And these three generations, the generation of Sodom comes back and says, please Hashem, give us another chance. And remember that Abraham Avinu had the opportunity to take all of them as his slaves, as his servants. And if they were his slaves and his servants, he could have taught them in his own house what it means to do Gemilut Hasadim. But they failed. And in some way, Abraham is blamed. And Abraham takes upon himself the tikkun of Adam Harishon. So these people of Sodom will return again as the descendants of Abraham in Egypt, as the generation that will leave Egypt and go to the Midbar. It's unbelievable. That generation, the rabbis say, is also potentially our generation. Our generation. So Adam Harishon, his tikkun is supposed to be in Noah's generation, the people of the flood, they fail. They come back as the Dor HaFlaga, the, the, the generation of the tower who's dispersed. They come back as Sidom, and they come back one more time to witness the miracles in Egypt, the miracles in the desert. And in fact, the rabbis are telling us that that Dor HaMidbar is the door also of the Chivle Meshicha. The birth pangs of the Mashiach, which in fact may be us. May be us. So when we talk about this story, we're not only talking about people, we're talking about potentially our own souls. Our own souls. We failed, we failed, we failed, we came back. We succeeded partially. But the challenge is to complete the success in our generation. The rabbis tell us, and we all know, that there's a Torah Shebikhtav, a written Torah. And there's a Torah Shebaalpeh, an oral Torah. What is less known is that the Torah Shebaalpeh, the oral Torah, can be broken down into two subcomponents. The oral Torah of Olam Hazir of this world and the oral Torah of Olam Haba. Regarding the Messianic Torah, the Torah of Olam Haba, the Midrash tells us all of the Torah which a person learns in this world is like Hevel, vapor, relative to the Torah of Olam Haba. The Torah of Olam Haba is supposed to be pure pleasure with no toil. It's a Torah of reward. Now let's relate these parts of the Torah to these same three generations. Let's go back. The door of the Mabu, the generation of the flood, those souls were associated with Torah Shebikhtav, they were in Torah. We explained Noah, who's an aspect of Moshe Rabbein, who should have been able to give them the Torah. 
Now remember, Moshe Rabbeinu spent 40 days and 40 nights receiving the Torah. The Torah is often compared to water. It's likened to water, but it was rejected by these souls. And it's thus through the same idea that they were punished. The fact is the Mabul, the flood, was in some way a replacement or a cross of the wires of Matan Torah. The Matan Torah that wasn't to be. And just like Matan Torah is 40 days, 40 nights, the Mabul is 40 days and 40 nights. And in fact, generations later when they returned to Egypt, some of some of us, some of those in Egypt were, were drowned as a further tikkun for the door of the Mabul. And we said they come back as the Dor HaFlagah, the generation of dispersion. And that, that generation contained neshamot, souls, which are associated with the oral Torah. This is highlighted by the fact that their sin was completely speech-related. We read, and behold, the entire land was of one language and one speech. Their intimate knowledge of Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue, to manipulate the spiritual dimension to their advantage, that's what they had. <clears throat> we also know when it comes to learning Torah Shebaal Peh, when it comes to learning Gemara, we say that two people, two, two study partners, even a father and a son, two brothers, can sit together and each takes a different position and they battle but at the end, they come to the truth together and their love for each other is tremendous. They're so unified. They're arguing over the oral Torah. We also know that when it comes to the oral Torah, the rabbis tell us that when Hashem taught Moshe Rabbeinu the Torah, He explained 49 reasons why something should be positive, 49 reasons something should be negative, 49 reasons why something should be permitted, 49 reasons why something should be forbidden. And although there's many things that a Torah Moshe Sinai, where we have the halacha specific, there are certain things that were left to the rabbis in the Gemara. And we see when it's left to the rabbis in the Gemara, and they have an argument over what the law should be. We have the specific case of the, of the argument over the, uh, there was a, a certain stove, and the stove, was it going to be kosher or was it not going to be kosher? And what happens is they have this argument where Rabbi Eliezer has a lone opinion and Rabbi Yehoshua represents the, the majority opinion and they battle over whether a certain type of oven is capable of becoming Tamir. And what happens, Rabbi Eliezer wants to show how sure he's right. And he says heaven should perform supernatural wonders to prove that he's right. And then again and again, he, he makes miracles happen to show he's right. And despite all of these heavenly signs, what does Rabbi Yeshua do? He ignores them. And he rises to his feet and he says, quoting the Torah itself in Devarim, Lo bashamayim hi. It's not in heaven. The Gemara over there in Baba Metziah explains, the Torah was given to man. And in it, it states that the law follows the majority of the sages, period. And it's interesting. 
that what happens in this case where heaven seems to be pressing to prove that Rabbi Eliezer is right and Rabbi Yeshua says, no, we're deciding. One of the sages met Eliyahu Anavi and he asks him, what was Hashem doing during the time of this argument? And Eliyahu Anavi answered, Hashem was smiling. And he says, my sons have won against me. My sons have won against me. And what does this mean? Hashem is saying, this is exactly how the oral Torah is supposed to be. The sages have to fulfill their role even contrary to heavenly signs. Now let's see this as looking at this generation of Dor HaFlaga. They have unity like those who are learning. And in fact, if they're learning and they're deciding, they can say, Lo he. And they're in some way battling Hashem, but in a way that Hashem is smiling. But what do they do? They do the opposite. They battle Hashem completely. They battle Hashem. And when they come back again during the time of the exodus from Egypt, during the time in Egypt, what do they have to do as a tikkun? As a tikkun, they have to go and build with bricks and with clay. Because they were the ones who built the tower with bricks. Now they come and they have to build these pyramids that basically sink into the ground again and again. And the rabbis go on and explain so many of the terms used with regard to the building of bricks relate to terms of the Torah Shabbat. So let's then jump to Sidon. The souls of Sidon are spiritually rooted in the Torah of Mashiach. The Torah that's destined to be revealed in the future. And sometimes we have an inkling to touch. You know, sometimes you have the greatest pleasure when you learn something. You have the greatest pleasure when you give a class. It can't be described, this pleasure. It's just a pleasure that relates to this pleasure of Torah Shel Olam Haba. And this Torah Shel Olam Haba has no toil, it has no burden. So the root of this generation is with pleasure. But what do they do? They divert the spiritual pleasure and they replace it with a physical pleasure. Because remember, when there's a spiritual pleasure, there is a physical pleasure. But they wipe the spiritual pleasure and focus only on the physical pleasures of this world, the selfishness of this world. They cut the wires and instead of a spiritual pleasure... They seek only the physical pleasure to the extreme and it's only for themselves. The failure of each generation was that they were gifted with an incredible potential and power and instead of using it for the good and caring and sharing, what did they do? They reversed polarity. They used it for selfishness. They caused tremendous short circuits and explosions. And these explosions resulted just like Shiva Sabi Tammuz and Tishabeav resulted in the explosion of the destruction of the Mikdash. These explosions resulted in a Mabul, in a flood, in a dispersion of the people of the world, and the destruction of the city of Sedom. The tikkun for Avraham's descendants, those he could have saved, was in Egypt. And we were then able to receive the Torah, both the written and the oral. But the idea of us being them may be that we face this test again. And our reward 
is the potentially the reward of pure pleasure. How do we understand the rebuilding of Sodom? Is it the dozens of luxury hotels growing in the Dead Sea? Is it the hotel I stayed in with the sign that said, uh, Ed, Sodom to the left? The Shem Ishmuel suggests that destruction of Sodom was to be a warning for Kalal Yisrael as to what happens if they don't live up to the standards of Israel. And that was only needed until the coming of the Mashiach. Once Mashiach comes, the warning's not needed. Sodom can begin to flourish as it originally did. You know, we read in the Haftarah on Sukkot, we read about the water coming back, the water flowing. Perhaps the water flowing will take the Dead Sea and bring it back to life. Maybe that's what it's all about. But I think we have to think about us. We have to think about us. How do we compare to these people of Sodom? You know, we said that the, these, are the, the, these days were so busy, we can't sin. I heard Rabbi Fars say that the, the rabbis didn't realize how easy it is to sin today with a cell phone. You know, you could sin in 13 seconds, right? So, so the challenge for us is we have everything today. So many times, I tell you, I think about my great-grandfather. He traveled across the world in the 19th century. He was in India, he was in England, he was in France, he was in San Francisco, he was in New York, he was all over the place. Imagine for a second he had gone almost a decade without without communicating with his family. His daughter passed away, he didn't even know about it. Imagine if he would have seen a cell phone with FaceTime. Imagine the miracle to be able to communicate. I talk about the miracle of running water that we have. How many of us appreciate it? We have to understand that through these miracles, we could appreciate Hashem. He's given us so much. But what happens is the luxuries that we have that our parents and grandparents would have imagined could only come if they rubbed the genie's bottle and a genie came. And even then they wouldn't have even asked for the things that we have because they couldn't even imagine them. We have so much, abundant food, we have long life, we have medical care, instant communication, we could travel all over the world, information is at our fingertips. There's nothing in Torah, nothing in Torah that every one of us does not have access to all the time. Everyone could be a scholar, a Talmud Chacham, everyone could be a giver, everyone has the power to share. Yo, yo, of course. There are a number of people within our communities, within the world, not just a number, thousands and thousands who have unlimited resources. Literally, they could do so much. And why was Hashem giving them these unlimited resources? In order for them to help other people. But even those who are struggling, everyone has the ability to do something, to help, to care, to share, to do something for someone else. And this is our test. If we are really that Gilgul of the, of the Mabul, of the Dor HaFlaga, and of Sedom specifically, where we're going to come to this Torah, the Torah of the future, the Torah, the spiritual Torah of Mashiach, then the test on us is the test it is on Sedom. Are we going to be selfish and keep it for ourselves? Are we going to give charity just to get rid of the guy a couple of dollars here and there? Or are we going to learn from Abraham Avinu? We're going to learn from Abraham Avinu and say, you know what? We're going to be like Abraham. We're going to help others. We're going to care about others. You know, when I wrote this a year ago, I said, what is the idea of Corona? What is it teaching us? Is it a pause for Hashem to say, hey, hey, it's not easy to be alone. Hey, it's not easy. 
It's not easy not to be able to share. Hashem is telling us, listen, I want you to see, like he told the people of Sodom, I'm sending you out to be captured only so you should appreciate. I'm sending Abraham to save you only so you should appreciate. What is Hashem telling us? And the beauty of this holiday of Sukkot, it's a holiday where we leave our houses. We have magnificent houses. And we leave our houses, we leave the comfort of our homes, and we step into the sukkah. We eat in the sukkah. We sleep in the sukkah. Remember that the the holiday of Sukkot is the only holiday that we say, the only mitzvah, I think, really, we say if someone's mitzta'er, if someone's bothered, he doesn't have to stay. The gematria of sukkah, we take the samach and the hay is 65. The chaf and the vav is 26, 91. But 26 and 65 are what? 26 is Shem Hashem, the Yud, the K, the Vav, the K. And if you look in the Sidur, you see in the last hey, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud. You combine the Hashem's name as it's written, Hashem's name as it's pronounced, the unity of Hashem is 91. When B'nai Israel were in the desert, the, the manifestation, if we could say a some level of a physical manifestation of the Shekhinah is where? In the Ananeh HaKodesh, in the clouds. And the rabbis teach us that when we sit in the sukkah, the first piece of bread we have to have in mind to remember the Ananeh HaKodesh, the clouds in the desert, which covered us, which protected us, which took care of us. That's what the sukkah is. Because when we step into the sukkah, we stepped into literally the Shekhinah. The reason why we could have a mitzvah that says, if you bother, don't come. Is because if you appreciate that the sukkah is Hashem and is giving you a chance to stay with Him, you're never going to want to leave. You have seven days that Hashem is saying, come in and be part of me. Do we think the, the, the guests are coming? The Hushbizin, Abraham, Yitzhak, is He coming to visit me? Ridiculous. They're coming because the sukkah is the place of the Shekhinah. They're coming to be with the Shekhinah. And it's a lesson to us. Leave the physical things. Leave those desires. Leave the pure pleasure that we think about on a physical level. And focus on the spiritual of a, of a spiritual level. Focus on the, on, the, on the pleasure of a spiritual level. This is the sukkah. And what's the big mitzvah of sukkah? Bring guests. You can't have a holiday of sukkah. You can't have a meal without guests. Because this is the essence of the tikkun of Sidon. The tikkun of Sedom is to push away those physical pleasures and realize that it's the spiritual pleasures that are important. And the tikkun of Sedom is to do the opposite. They rejected guests, we have to bring guests in. Bezrat Hashem, we're going to celebrate this holiday of Sukkot. And we're going to make it something so special. And we're going to understand that just like the potential was there, we can get the potential back and realize it. And we should all be zocher. That Hashem should allow us, after we celebrate this, to celebrate with the Mashiach b'merabi amenu amen in the sukkah of the Leviathan, the sukkah of Sedom, and we should see a new and better world altogether.